Okay, this morning, I want to talk again um, about one of those areas in our spiritual lives that we don't talk about very often. Um, As Christ followers, we really are used to talking about loving God more and more. We talk about our daily quiet time with him. We talk about spiritual practices of practicing the presence of God. We sing about the love of God. We, we worship him. We're used to that focus when we gather together. So much so that, that if you look at, at um, worship, contemporary worship songs, they are overwhelmingly directed to singing and praising um, our God, which is a good thing. It is a very good thing for us to be devoted to our spiritual maturity with God. What we're not used to reflecting on as much is our emotional maturity with people. We talk and think a lot and sing a lot about our spiritual maturity with God. We don't talk about, don't even have many songs about our spiritual maturity with people. And what that means is that we sort of get this idea that we can love God really well when we're loving people really badly. We sort of have this idea, we have this idea that our our spiritual well-being is connected vertically like this. And we think that this doesn't matter near as much. And the scripture that we're going to look at today is going to show how love for God and love for each other is absolutely interconnected, that we can't have one without having the other. And most of us, if we've hung around the church for very long, if we've hung around other Christians very much, most of us have seen the devastating consequences of people thinking that they can love God, but then being destructive of, of relationships with people. And I have to tell you that um, the most painful relationships in my life have hardly had anything to do with people not knowing how to love God. The most painful relationships and times in my life have been times when I and other people don't know how to love each other. And the most painful failures in my life haven't come to, haven't been due to the fact that I haven't known or wanted to love God. Most of them have come, been due to the fact that I haven't known or wanted enough to love people. So, sadly, one of the things that I realize when I look at my life is that um, I have created great pain for the people I love because of the emotional gaps inside of my heart. Because I haven't paid enough attention to this thing about loving people the way that we're called to love people. So, today we're going to see our love for God absolutely connected to our love for people. We can't have one without the other. You only love God as well as you love other people, and you can only love other people as well as you love God. So in case you're visiting this morning, we are in this series of sermons called Emotional Health, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. And I've said this before, but basically what this series of sermons has tried to do is find areas of our lives that have been neglected by our Christian formation. Bring them front and center so that we can pay attention to them. And just so you know, next Sunday we're going to do um, Palm Sunday. We're going to step off the series. Um, we're going to do Palm Sunday and the, the triumphal entry. We'll have our Good Friday service. Easter will obviously be about the resurrection. But because we had that snow Sunday um, in this series, the last sermon in the series is going to be the week after Easter. But just so you know, we're not going to, um, we're not going to mess up Palm Sunday and Easter just to finish the sermon series. And the final sermon is actually going to be about... Um, 
about living by a rule of life, deciding what we want to become, writing that down, and finding ways to live into what we want to become. So um, today, I want to explore how do we become emotionally mature adults in our relationships with people. We're going to focus on 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 to 20. But before we get there, let me just give you an idea of what we're talking about for this whole thing of emotional maturity. Pete Scazzaro, who wrote the book, um, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, he describes four levels of emotional immaturity towards maturity. He says, some people are emotional infants, some people are emotional children, some people are emotional adolescents, and some people are actually emotional adults. It has nothing to do with our chronological age. We can be 25 and be emotional adults. Or we can be 65 and still be functioning like emotional infants. So let me just kind of review for you Scazzaro's levels of emotional immaturity going towards maturity. So he talks about emotional infants. And think, I mean, think of actual babies, all right? Um, wear a bow and mini. You're up there. Okay, think about your baby, okay? Think about babies that you've been around. Um, emotional infants look to others to take care of them. They expect other people to meet their wants and needs. And emotional infants, you know, you know when, a, when a baby doesn't get what it wants, what's it do? It screams and yells and whines and cries, right? Emotional infants do the same thing when they don't get what they want from other people. They have um, temper tantrums. They get angry. They blame other people for not meeting their needs. Emotional adults take care of themselves. Emotional infants blame others for not taking care of them. Emotional infants have difficulty entering into the world of others. And the reason for this is because they are naturally self-focused and narcissistic. So my daughter has three, has our three grandchildren, and from time to time she will um, tell me again that she realizes that she's raising barbarians, okay? Children, infants are naturally narcissistic. They don't have to work at it. They just are self-centered and narcissistic. And emotional infants don't know how to get out of their own narcissism to actually enter into the world of others. Emotional infants are driven for their need for instant gratification. Right? I want it, and I want it now. They are impulsive. So in our lives, we're acting like emotional infants when we demand what we want right now. When we do impulsive things, when we overdrink, it's a sign of our emotional infancy. When we are addicted to things, when we just knee-jerk reactions suck into certain sins because we want what we want and we want it right now. And emotional infants use others as objects to meet their needs. And when those people stop fulfilling what we want them to do, we write them off and out of our lives. Okay, so that's emotional infancy. And it wouldn't take much for you to think of maybe some people in your life who function at that level of emotional immaturity. Emotional children are a little bit more mature, but emotional children are still only content as long as they are getting what they want. All right? If they're not getting what they want, they then become crabby and they throw a temper tantrum. Emotional children unravel and fall apart quickly under stresses and disappointments and trials. An emotional adult has an inner core strength 
So when the stresses come, they can handle it, right? Emotional children fall apart when those stresses and disappointments um, show up. Emotional children interpret disagreements as personal offenses. You ever been around somebody who's just always offended, always getting their feelings hurt, always just mad at other people for how they've been? Emotional children um, see disagreements as personal offenses. Emotional children easily hurt and offended. Um, Emotional children complain, withdraw, manipulate, take revenge, become sarcastic when they don't get their way. Emotional children have great difficulty calmly discussing their needs and wants because they're not differentiated. They don't know who they are, so they don't know how to talk about their needs and wants. You see how emotional infants and emotional children, being there will get in the way of our loving each other really well. So emotional adolescence. Here, think of a, t- a teenager that you know, all right? Um, Schizero says emotional adolescents tend to be defensive and argumentative. They are more reactive than proactive. Emotional adolescents don't have a clear sense of identity. They don't know who they are. So that in this setting, they're this. In this setting, they're this. They become chameleons, and they become whatever the setting is. That's not emotional adulthood. That's emotional adolescence. Emotional adolescents are threatened and alarmed by criticism. Emotional adolescents keep score so they can ask for something back later in return. Emotional adolescents deal with conflict poorly. They will either try to ignore conflict or they will become appeasers or they will go on the attack and become blamers or they'll go and they'll triangulate and go to other people instead of dealing with the people themselves. Emotional adolescents are preoccupied again with themselves. We call it adolescent egocentrism. Well, there is an emotional adolescent egocentrism that always thinks, how is it going to affect me first? Something comes in a conversation. The first thing they think about is, how is it going to affect me? What am I going to lose? What do I have to gain? Emotional adolescents have difficulty truly listening to other people's pain because they don't know how to get outside of themselves, but they don't know how to differentiate, so they get lost in other people's pain. Emotional adolescents tend to be critical and judgmental. They tend to compare themselves to others often, which is kind of interesting. An emotional adult is confident in their identity. Emotional adolescents are always looking at other people and evaluating themselves in comparison to it. Because they're not clear about their limits, emotional adolescents chronically overperform and overcommit, or the other way, they chronically underperform and undercommit because they don't understand their limits. Emotional adolescents make assumptions about people and people's motives without checking out those assumptions. Emotional adolescents have unconscious, unspoken, unclear expectations for others. And they blame those other people when those expectations are not met. And emotional adolescents expect other people to love them first. Instead of taking the initiative to be the ones who love first. Emotional immaturity is going to distract us from loving the way the scriptures call us to love. Um, in my last church, um, we got courageous, and our leadership team decided we were going to take a questionnaire that, that, um, that you can go online and take if you want to. And, um, and we took the questionnaire and tallied it all up and found there wasn't a single emotional adult in the room. We were all emotional children and emotional adolescents. Guess how we did conflict? Really badly. 
Guess how, how we, we dealt with our, our differences? Really, really badly. So, Scazzaro says that in contrast, emotional adults are able to ask for what they need, want, or prefer. And they're able to do that clearly and directly and honestly. Emotional adults recognize, manage, and take responsibility for their own thoughts and feelings. Because adolescents and children, they say, you made me do that. You made me feel that. Emotional adults say, no, I'm, I'm the one who's responsible for my emotions, thoughts, and feelings. When under duress, emotional adults can state their beliefs and values without becoming adversarial. In other words, we can disagree without being disagreeable. We can honor people even when we disagree with them. Emotional adults can respect others without having to change those people to meet their expectations. Emotional adults give people room to make mistakes and not be perfect. Isn't that kind of neat? When you're around somebody who is that level of emotional maturity, you know that you can screw up. And they're not going to hold it against you for the next 10 years. It's like, okay, that's done. Let's get on with life. Emotional adults um, accurately assess their own limits, strengths, and weaknesses. Emotional adults are in tune with their own emotional inner world. And because of that, they're able to enter the feelings of others and the needs of others without losing themselves. And emotional adults have the capacity to resolve conflict maturely and negotiate solutions that take consideration of every party. Okay? Adolescents do win-lose. Emotional adults find a better way through the conflict that honors everybody that's there. So I want to look with you at 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 to 20, about what the Apostle John says about learning to love like emotional adults. So um, verses 7, um, go ahead and throw the screen. Verses 7 and 8, we're going to find our first point. Dear friends, the Apostle Paul is writing, our Apostle John is writing, Dear friends, let us continue to love one another. For love comes from God. Anyone who loves is a child of God and knows God. But anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Note just at the very beginning that if we don't know how to love each other well, we don't know God. And if we know God, then we are constantly learning how to love each other better and better. The two can't be separated. Anyone who does not know love does not know God because God is love. So isn't it sad to see Christians so often worshiping and adoring God and then the next week tearing other people down or dishonoring people or not treating people with respect? Verse 7 says, anyone who loves is a child of God and knows God. The significance of this actually hit me when, um, when um, we we're about to have our second child. So our first daughter is Christine. Marla's pregnant. We have this little girl. And I kid you not, first time I held that kid, I gave her my entire heart. I just fell head over heels in love with her. Marla and I both did. This little thing it just, just absolutely captured our heart which was really cool until 18 months later when we were about to have our second kid and I panicked because I thought, oh no, I gave Christine my entire heart. Where am I going to find enough love for this next one? And I don't remember how the Lord did it, but the Lord taught me something somehow. I don't know whether somebody else talked to me or whether I read something or what it was, but, um, but God um, taught me a truth and the truth was this. 
If God is in us, and God is the God of love, if God who is the God of love is in us, there is no limit to our capacity to love. Think about that. If you're a follower of Jesus, God dwells within you. His Holy Spirit lives within you. God is a God of love. If the God of love dwells within us, there is absolutely no limit to our capacity to love. doesn't matter how many children we have because I found out I could love child number two with my entire heart and I could love child number three. Neither does it matter how lovable people are or how unlovable they are. Neither does it matter how they treat us. If the God of love lives within us, there is no limit to our capacity to love, which means that when our capacity to love is, is, is shrunken, it's not because of God. It's because we're blocking it somewhere. We're getting in the way. If the God of love who is in us, is of love is within us, we have no limit to our capacity to love. So that's the first point, okay? First point is if God is in us, we will love people. And if we're not loving people, God's not sufficiently in us. Point number two is in verses 9 and 10. God showed how much he loved us by sending his one and only son into the world so that we might have eternal life through him. This is real love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. Point number two is this. The definition of love for the followers of Jesus is how God has loved us in Christ Jesus. I mean, all kinds of songs, all kinds of books. People talk about love all the time, but not all love is equal love. The definition of love for the followers of Jesus is simply this. It's how God has loved us in Christ Jesus. So, do we want to know how to love each other? Let's think about how God loves us. Just in these verses, we see that God's love, in his love for us, he's given us his best. He's given us his one and only son. So, if we're supposed to love like God loves then we constantly give others our best. We're always striving to give them our best. We see, secondly, that the way God has loved us in Christ Jesus, God gave us his all. It was his only son, and he gave it to us completely. So as Christians, the kind of love that we strive to give is a love which gives all, that doesn't hold back. I know that's scary, but that's the way God has loved us. We next see that God's love for us is a love that gives life. Okay? It gives us eternal life. Our love for one another is supposed to be the kind of love that gives life. So um, I read a quote this week that said that to love someone is to reveal, or to, to love is to reveal the beauty of another person to themselves. Isn't that interesting? To love is to reveal the beauty of another person to themselves. And that gives life. When we are loving like God loves, we are helping people be fully alive. We see next that the kind of love that God has for us is God's love that is a love that loves first. While we were still sinners, while we were still estranged from God, while we were still enemies of God, God loved us. Christian love Likewise, is a love that loves first. In the world, you get to know people so you can decide whether you want to love them. 
in the church, you love people first, and then you get to know them. Christian love is always a love that loves first. It doesn't wait to respond to other people's love. It's a love that takes the initiative to love first. And then we get to know each other. And then we see here that God's love is sacrificial, right? It costs. A love that is this great and and this profound and this glorious is inevitably going to cost a price. To love like God loves, to love each other, the way God loves us, is going to cause a sacrifice for us. There will be times when we will have to give up something that is dear to us. So, our goal as Christians is to love one another the way God loves us. So, point number one, if God is in us, we will love people. Point number two, the definition of Christian love is how God loves us. Point number three is in verses 11 and 12. Dear friends, since God loved us that much, what we just talked about, We surely ought to love each other. No one has ever seen God. But if we love each other, God lives in us. And his love is brought to full expression in us. Point number three is fascinating. I've never seen this before, even though I've preached on this text before. God's love is not fulfilled until we love other people. Isn't that interesting? Um, If we love each other, um, God lives in us. His love is brought to full expression in us. And the picture I have is that God's love is there and it's waiting and it's waiting and it's waiting and it's waiting and it's just waiting and waiting. And then we love somebody else and the full expression of God's love blossoms and flows and is completed. When we're withholding our love, we are, are disenabling God's love to have its full expression. And when we love well, we are, we are incarnating the love of God in our world around us so that it will blossom, so that it will be complete, so that it will be glorious. All right, our next point is going to be from verses 13 to 16. And God has given us his spirit as proof that we live in him and he in us. Okay, I told you, if you're, if you're a believer, the spirit of God, the loving God is in us. Um, He's given us his spirit as proof that we live in him and he in us. Furthermore, we have seen with our own eyes and now testify that the father sent the son to be the savior of the world. All who declare that Jesus is the son of God have God living in them and they live in God. We know how much God loves us and we have put our trust in his love. So point number four is that we Christians... The foundation, the anchor, is that we have put our trust in God's love. It doesn't matter. We fail again and again and again and again. When we trust God's love, we come back and say, Father, it's me. I screwed up again. Thank you for your love. When we trust God's love and and we go through suffering, we don't say, I wonder whether God stopped loving us. No, we say, we know that God loves us. Father, help us to to notice what you want us to notice as we go through this suffering or as we go through this loss. When we don't understand what's going on, we don't say, well, that must prove that God doesn't love us. When we don't understand what's going on, we say, I don't get it, Father, but I know that underneath everything else, you love us. Have you ever loved anybody so completely that your heart ached? I mean, think of, I mean, sometime when you loved so much, it just, your love was, it just ached inside of you. If you're fortunate, you've experienced when a person that you have loved that much 
starts to trust your love. And something inside of you has great joy when those you love deeply learn that they can always trust your love. I think it's that way with God. I think that when we trust his love, we bring him great joy and pleasure. I think it thrills the heart of God. So here's a question for you. When's the last time you thrilled the heart of God by trusting his love no matter what? And it matters because if we don't trust the love of God for us, we're not going to be able to go on to the way we're supposed to love other people. And so point five is going to be in verses 16 and 17. God is love and all who live, I mean, see the theme constantly, right? God is love and all who live in love live in God and God lives in them. And as we live in God, our love grows more perfect. And, and that word for perfect is also a word that means complete, fulfilled, okay? It, it's more full. So it's not perfect in the sense that of perfectionism, but it's perfect in the sense that it's complete. As we live in God, our love grows more perfect. So we will not be afraid on the day of judgment, but we can face him with confidence because we live like Jesus here in the world. Here's something that I see when I, I, I come across emotional, mature adults is they love and they love and they love. And they have some kind of a sense of security and confidence in who they are before God. They've received God's love and they've, they've let that love flow through them so that God's love has full expression. And you look at their life, their life and you say, wow, there's an anchor there that is just astounding. When we love, we have confidence with God. Confidence on the day of judgment that when we see God face to face and he looks at us and says, how'd you do in loving my people? We're going to say, did it. Didn't do it perfectly, but I did it. I kept on loving and kept on loving the best way that I knew. I grew into an emotional adult so that I could love people well. We're going to have that confidence. And that confidence kind of slides over into this life. So think of people you know that are deep, godly, emotional, mature adults who love really well. And don't you notice they have a foundation and a confidence in life? We can't have that. We can be so confident. And the reason is, is this. We know that we know that we know that we know that we are walking like Jesus walked. We are loving like Jesus loved. Point number six is in verses 18 and 19. Such love has no fear. Because perfect, that complete love that we talked about. Perfect love expels all fear. If we're afraid, it's for fear of punishment. And this shows that we have not yet fully experienced his perfect love. And we love each other. He said this already. We love each other because he loved us first. Point number six. Perfect love casts out fear. And because of that, we can love fearlessly. Perfect love casts out fear so that we can love fearlessly. Emotional immaturity is always asking what it's going to get out of it. Emotional immaturity thinks about self. Something comes in a conversation, and the first thing that thinks is, how is it going to affect me? Emotional immaturity, because it thinks about self, is driven by fear that it might get hurt, or it might get wounded, or it might not get loved back the way it wants to love. Perfect love casts out all fear. Here's why. 
when I love somebody perfectly, I'm not thinking about me anymore. I am completely focused on them. I can only be afraid when I'm thinking about me. But if I am fully thinking about the other person, I don't have to be afraid anymore. And folks, I would love for your generation to get this because I would love for you to be fearless, loving people in your generation. Perfect love casts out fear. And the final point number seven is verses 20 and 21. And then I want to give you three practices to grow your emotional maturity to love better. All right? If someone says, I love God, this is John's conclusion of the matter. Someone says, I love God, but hates a fellow believer, that person's a liar. Four, if we don't love people we can see, how can we love God whom we cannot see? And so he has given us this command. Those who love God must love one another. And the final point, point seven um, from this text, there's all kinds of other things we could find. Final point here is to love well is the essence of Christianity. To love well is the essence of Christianity. Love for God and love for each other. Really, you're not going to get a theology exam when you stand face to face with God. There are going to be people in heaven with horrible theology. But there aren't going to be many people in heaven who don't love well. The essence of Christianity is to love God well and to love each other well. We can and we must love one another. So I want you to see how our emotional immaturity hinders our capability of loving fearlessly the way God loves us. But the problem is this. None of us wakes up in the morning and says to ourselves, how can I love like an emotional infant today? (laughs) Right? That's one of the things about emotional immaturity. You don't have to think about it. You get it without thinking about it. The only way you get away from emotional immaturity is you start to think about it. So I want to give you three practices to help you grow in this area of your emotional maturity so that you are able to love better and better. First practice, we've talked about this one a lot, but it's essential. Practice the presence of God every day. When we practice the presence of God, we immerse in his love. My life has been transformed over the last maybe 15 years when I started accepting and receiving the love of God for me every opportunity that I have. And I have, I have like these, these um, symbols in my life that remind me to stop and receive God's love. So let me give you some hints on practicing the presence of God every day. You should know this, but let me just give, give you um, just five pointers on practicing the presence of God. Number one, set aside time daily. Emotional immaturity comes without any effort. Emotional maturity will take effort. Everything's going to start with this daily commitment to set aside time for God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's going to take intentionality. You won't become emotionally mature by accident. You will only become more and more emotionally immature. Number two, during that time that you set aside to be with God, minimize the distractions. All right? Minimize the distractions. Go to a place where you don't have to to greet people who walk by. Um, Don't answer your phone. 
Don't get up and empty the dryer. Don't check your email. Don't make your weekly to-do list. Don't think about what you have to get when you go to the store. If you don't manage the distractions during your time of practicing the presence of God, you may spend time there, but I guarantee that time is going to shrink and shrink and shrink and you're going to stop doing it. Managing the distractions is a key part to practicing the presence of God. Number three, when you're there present with the Lord, learn to ask him good questions. Learn to ask God good questions. Ask him how pleased or if he's displeased with anything in your life the last 24 hours. Ask him if you missed noticing his presence or whether you were not faithful in something that he reminded you to do. Ask God to help you be more sensitive to your sin. Ask God to help you to to note when you're not loving well so that you can learn, so that you can begin to love better. Ask God to share more of his vision for your life. Learn to ask good questions for God. There are times when my question for God is, God, what questions do you want me to ask you right now? Learn to ask good questions so that you are actually, you're, you're actually, you're actually inviting God to speak into your life when you practice his presence. And number four, be kind of stupid to ask good questions, right? Without listening carefully and reflectively to how the Spirit impresses you. I've told you this before. I try to write down any impression I have from the Spirit. If I ask him questions, then I'm trying to take note of it because I don't want to, you know, that night or even, you know, four hours later say, God said something to me this morning that was really, really important. I wish I could remember it. So I write it down and capture it because it would be foolish to um, ask questions and not listen. And we talked about this months ago when Jesus said to us, pay careful attention to how you listen. So part of practicing the presence of God is listening well. Keep in mind that when your mouth is open to talk, your ears are closed to listen. So you must have ingredients of your practicing the presence of God, of your devotional life, of your prayer life. There have to be ingredients of listening. And then number five, I would just say, um, be prayerful. Start out with thanksgiving in your prayers. Appreciate what God's done. Appreciate who God is. And make sure that you share with God anything that's on your heart. Because you know what? He loves you so much that if, it, if it's something that's troubling you, he wants to be able to speak into that. So share what's on your heart. Ask for his wisdom and guidance and love for the day. That's practicing the presence of God. You're used to that idea. Right? Second practice I would like to suggest to you on a daily basis. Learn to practice the presence of self. Learn to practice the presence of of self. This one might surprise you, but this is critical. I wish someone had told me this when I was your guys' age. There's a little phrase at the end of the second greatest commandment. First greatest commandment, Jesus says, love God with all your heart, mind, soul, all your being, love God. Second commandment, love one another. What's the next phrase? As you love yourself. And we just sort of run over that phrase too often. Um, But I think that phrase is an invitation for us to learn to practice the presence of self. Learn what's going on inside so that we can love other people. Um, This is not narcissism. 
This is not the disease of introspection. Those are real things. Those actually happen. This is not what we're talking about here. This is what the Bible talks about as self-control. The, the Greek terminology or the word that we translate self-control in the New Testament is a compound of two words. First word is ego, which, right, we make that self, okay? Ego. The second word is kratos. The word kratos means power. So self-control in the New Testament is power over self. And so one of my pastor friends years ago defined self-control Biblical self-control is having a glorious grip on what's inside of me so that I can manage what's inside of me. Lack of awareness of what's going on inside of me um, means that I'm, I'm never going to grow in self-control. Lack of awareness of what's inside of Bill Johnson has caused great pain to the people I love the most. When I don't know that I'm angry, I will not control my anger and I will become abusive with people. When I don't know I'm lonely, I will look for ways to fill that loneliness that will be sin. When I don't know my unconscious expectations, I'm going to make you pay for not reading my mind. When I don't know I'm weary, and I don't pay attention to how Satan attacks me when I'm tired, then I will keep on flipping into the same sins cyclically time and time again. If I don't know I'm a perfectionist, I will drive people crazy with my need for control over them and every detail of my life. When I don't know my assumptions, I won't check them out with you, and I will attribute motives to you which you don't have. When I don't know that I'm on the treadmill of performance for my sense of identity, I will constantly overcommit and overperform and overfunction. When I don't know my fears, whether our fears are fears of abandonment, whether they're fears of conflict, whether they're fears of failure, if we don't know our fears, our fears will own us. They will drive us. If I don't know when I'm hurt and wounded, I will, I will, will sulk or I'll pout or I'll triangulate instead of dealing with people. When I don't practice the presence of self, I don't love God well and I don't love other people well. So how do you practice the presence of self? You can use the five, same five points. Start out with setting aside intentional time to figure out what's going on inside of you. We've talked about this before. We've called it the daily self-examination. It is an ancient Christian practice where once every 24 hours, I stop and I pay attention to what's going on inside of myself. So one of my spiritual directors, I've shared this with you before, he said, Bill, how do you expect to make any progress in the spiritual life if you don't examine yourself on a daily basis? We will not come to grips with our emotional immaturity if we don't learn this process of self-examination. So number two, so we set aside time. Number two, we minimize the distractions during that time of self-examination. Satan does not want you to succeed in this. He will distract you in any way you can. And, and he doesn't, we said this before too, right? Satan doesn't have to make you bad if he can just make you too busy. Because then you'll be too busy to pay attention and you won't grow. So during your time of self-examination, don't answer your email. Turn off your phone. Get into a place that's quiet so that you can review the last 24 hours of your life. Number three, ask yourself good questions, right? So, Jesus, what were you pleased with in me over the last 24 hours? What were you not pleased in me? What have I noticed about God in my own soul in the last 24 hours? Ask Jesus, was there any place in the last 24 hours where I really functioned as an emotional child? Or where I was demanding people meet my expectations. 
And, um, and then when junk comes out of you, because that's one of the things that happens in the daily self-examination, one of the, one of the things, when you get um, to the point where you're doing this faithfully, a couple of things happen. One of the things you find is that the same stuff keeps popping up over and over and over again. The other thing you find is that you notice when junk comes out of you. Now, when we are not practicing the presence of self, when junk comes out of us, we snap, we, we lose our temper, we get selfish, we sin. When junk comes out of us and we're not practicing the presence of self, we make excuses for it or we try to ignore it and hope it will go away. The problem is this. Nothing can ever come out of us that isn't inside of us. Right? Jesus says, out of the fullness of the heart, the mouth speaks. Nothing, nothing, nothing can come out of Bill Johnson that's not inside of Bill Johnson. Crabbiness can't come out of Bill if it's not in me. Lust can't come out of me if it's not in me. Impatience can't come out. So, practicing the presence of self teaches us to ask the question, where's that coming from inside of me? Where's that coming from? Jesus, what do you want to show me about where that's coming from inside of me? And then number four, be stupid to ask those good questions, right? Without listening to what the Lord would say. Um, without listening to, to the terrain of your own soul. It's interesting how little we are familiar with our inner person. The heart is where life comes from. But very often we're not familiar with the terrain of our own heart, our own soul. Practicing the presence of self. Not narcissism, not, not the disease of introspection. Practicing the presence of self will teach you to become familiar with the terrain of your soul. And then number five, as I said on the other one, um, when we practice the presence of self, we pray. Please start your prayer with thanksgiving for what God has already done in you. All right? Start your prayer by noticing that God has begun a good work in you with a confidence that he'll bring it to completion. And let's praise him for his great love. As we sang about earlier, let's, let's ask him for his wisdom and his guidance in our life for the day. All right, third one, then we're done. Um, practice the presence of God every day. Practice the presence of self every day. Third one, learn to practice the presence of people every day. Learn to practice the presence of people. What's that mean and how do we do it? In order to love people like we see in 1 John chapter 4, we're going to have to make a commitment to honor people no matter what. We have to make a commitment to love before we get to know people and to keep on loving after we get to know people. Not because of who they are, not because of what they look like, not because of what they give us, but because they have the thumbprint, the image of God stamped on who they are. That's why Jesus loves. He didn't love us because we're so good-looking or so smart or so devout or so holy. Jesus loves us because we have the thumbprint of God. The image of God is stamped upon us. And to practice the presence of people, we've got to stop looking at people transactionally. We've got to stop treating people as if they're just means to get something done. Even the person at the toll booth when you're going by on the highway. All right? We can learn to practice the presence of people. Nothing will increase our love more than practicing the presence of people. So how do we do it? Same ways. First of all, let's make time for people. Let's make time for, let's manage the pace of our lives so that we're not so busy that we can't look into somebody's eyes, that we can't notice something about them because we are so up against the wall, we're running 190 miles an hour that we can't hardly notice what's going on. If we don't manage the pace of our lives, 
then we won't practice the presence of people. And let's go beyond just that. Let's set aside intentional time to practice the presence of people. So that when you're with people, when you're having lunch with them, when you're having a conversation, when you're walking somewhere with them, let's, say, let's, let's remind ourselves that we can make that holy time by really investing in who they are. You know what, folks? I, I've made it a practice since I've been in Boston. When I'm on the tee, I pray for the people who are in my end of the, the train car. I just, I, I don't answer all my emails. I don't, you know, close my eyes and just, you know, wish these people would go away. <laughs> I actually try to practice the presence of people, even there, by praying for the people. So there, I told somebody this the other day. There was a lady, her back was to me. Um, I don't even know how old she was, because she had a hood on. Um, um, and, and I prayed for her, and I had this weird thought, impression, and, and just hit me. I wonder whether anybody has ever prayed for her ever since the day she was born. I don't know, but I wonder. And I wonder, as we practice the presence of people, whether we will fill some of those gaps. So what we're trying to do is practice the presence of people the way we see Jesus practice the presence of people in the Gospels. So pay attention to what Jesus does. Let's pay attention to the people there. And this isn't in my manuscript, but I'll tell a story about Marla. By the way, Marla's back. Yay! (laughs) Yay! (laughs) We were living in Minneapolis, and... We lived a block from, this is going to make the sermon longer. How am I doing? I'll try to make it really fast. We lived a block from the grocery store that sold more milk, gallons of milk in one week than any grocery store in the entire USA. Okay? And so you get an idea. I mean, the the checkout stands like go from here to across the street. And and I kid you not, Marla and I are there. We're picking up a couple things. I picked the register. She didn't pick it. So I just picked one that was the shortest line. Marla comes up, and she looks at the lady, and she says this. You've changed your hair. And then she says, and how's your daughter? And I thought, what? There's like 40 checkout things. And I figured out that Marla could stop at a bunch of those and ask somebody questions because she's really good at practicing the presence of people. We can become like that, folks, so that we notice people. They're not transactions but we create holy space as we enter into their worlds. So we're going to have to set aside time. We're going to have to minimize distractions. By the way, um, don't just turn off your phone when you're with people. Put it out of sight. Uh, a research thing I read like three weeks ago um, did a research project where, where people were talking and the phone was on the table and they evaluated the, the significance of the interaction. Just the phone being within sight and not being in sight changed the significance of the interaction. Minimize the distraction. Don't answer your phone. Don't think of what you're going to do next. Um, number three here on practicing the presence of people, it's the same as the other ones. Let's learn to ask really good questions. Let's learn to enter into other people's world by asking them appropriate questions. So, you know, if they're a Christian, I mean, it's wide open if somebody's a Christian. All right, what are you noticing about God these days? By the way, what's your holy calling? What are the things that you just really want to do for Jesus Christ? Where are you struggling? Where are you having victories? What do you like? I mean, with Christians, there's like no end, right, to the, the kinds of questions that we can ask. If, if it's a married couple, how'd you guys meet? What a simple question. Or how'd you get engaged? Um, just a simple question that you start to enter into another person's life. And we can learn those skills. Now, we have to find a pro. We have to know when to be lighthearted. Okay, first time I meet with somebody, I'm not asking what's your worst sin that you ever committed. Okay, so I'm figuring out stuff, but neither am I shy 
to ask about their world. And so don't ask people what they do. I mean, if you want to, fine. But don't stop with what they do. Find out what do they love to do. Do they have family? Do they have kids? If they could, could help anybody in the world, who would they want to help and why? And um, it's kind of neat. And, and June does a pretty decent job of asking people questions. So watch people who do that well and just do that. And don't be shy. You can have a confidence when you're walking as Jesus walked to enter into people's lives. All right, fourth one here. Um, let me see what else I said here. Oh, if they're Christians, obviously, what's their spiritual story? Okay. Um, fourth one here. It would be stupid to learn to ask good questions without paying attention to how, to how do you listen. So give people feedback. Ask them, is there more that you can tell me? Get to be good at listening. The scriptures say, be slow to speak, be quick to listen. That's a mark of spiritual adulthood, to listen well to people. Um, Pete Scazzaro quotes a Mennonite author who wrote, being heard is so close to being loved that for the average person, they're almost indistinguishable. Being heard is that close to people feeling that they are loved. Wouldn't it be amazing if here at Cornerstone, we got so good at asking questions and so good at listening that people around Boston, both Christians and non-Christians, would want to hang around us more? Because when they hang around us, then they feel like they have significance and value. They have more life. And then fifth, we can pray, right? Here's what I want to encourage you. Pray with each other more. When you have a good conversation with somebody, close it with a time of prayer. Whenever you can, pray then and there. There are some times when you can't. And by the way, if you can't pray then and there, pray for the person as you're walking away. Pray for the interaction. Pray for the people on the tee. Pray for for the people that God brings across your path. But if at all possible, pray with each other more and more. Spouses, I don't care how much you're praying now. Figure out how to pray with each other more. Good spiritual friends, if you're dating, if you're... Pray with each other regularly um, because amazing things happen when you pray together. And you know what else I'm kind of amazed at? I'm amazed at how many people who are complete strangers to me that I can say, can, I'm going to pray for my meal right now. Is there anything I can pray for you to the person who's serving? I'm astounded how often they'll actually tell me stuff to pray for for them. And as we pray for people, they are being interceded for before God and they are feeling, man, those Christian people must love. All right, I got to wrap up. Uh, we're called to love. We're called to grow out of emotional immaturity and into emotional maturity to live and love like Jesus loved. So let's learn this together. Let's learn to practice the presence of God, practice the presence of self, and practice the presence of people. Because I hope, I hope that your generation of Christ followers will become known as incredibly great lovers of people. Let's pray. Father, uh, there's a whole lot that we covered today. Um, I'm, I'm worn out from it. Um, but you've given us, through your word, a glimpse of your heart. And we want to see your heart's love certainly for us, for each other, and for those beyond us. We want to capture, just to get such a sense of your heart that we're captivated to love 
you to love one another more and more deeply from the heart. So help us learn these things in Jesus' name. Amen.